new techniques doing single cell sequencing and transcriptomics and also this in situ hybridization and transcriptomic analysis, they have a great future because then you can see and look in different cells. You can look for different subclones of tumors, cancer stem cells. You can also look for infiltrating lymphocyte inflammatory cells and also stromal cells to see what they take part in the whole picture. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and welcome to episode 41. So in today's podcast episode, we're going to talk about a complicated topic, but a really important one, namely the genetics of breast cancer. Now, except for skin cancers, breast cancer is the most common cancer among women in the United States, and probably around the world. In fact, if you are an average risk woman in the U.S., you have about a 1 in 8 chance of developing breast cancer at some point in your life. Breast tumors can be classified into subtypes based on patterns of gene expression or DNA methylation, or nucleotide substitutions, or genomic rearrangements. There are hereditary or familial breast cancers that make up about 5 to 10% of breast cancer cases. And these result from inherited DNA mutations or variants. For example, specific germline mutations in BRCA1 and BRCA2 also called BRCA1 and BRCA2, can significantly increase the risk of developing female breast cancer. In about 20% of all breast cancers, a DNA mutation in the HER2 gene can lead to excess amounts of HER2 protein. And HER2 mutational status can help inform breast cancer prognosis and treatment options. So to discuss the complicated genetics of breast cancer, I'm joined by Dr. Oke Borg. Oke is Professor of Oncology and Pathology at Lund University in Sweden, and he's an expert in the genetics of breast cancer and tumor genomics. We're going to talk today about genomics of breast cancer and how you use genomics analysis to really define breast cancer a bit better at the genetic level and develop better biomarkers for risk stratification of individuals with breast cancer. I was wondering if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about your scientific background and what brought you into this field of studying the genetics of breast cancer. Right, yeah. And that takes us 40 years back. 40 years? In in the late 70s. Uh, That was just right after I finished my undergrad studies in biology and chemistry at the University in Lund. So I got the chance to work as a technician in the Department of Oncology Research Laboratory that had just started collecting fresh breast tumor tissue for doing uh, analysis of protein expression of estrogen and progesterone receptors. Right. That was turned out to be used for prediction of endocrine therapy in breast cancer. So we As early as the 70s? In the 70s. And, and by that time, we didn't use the fancy technique as done today. We used radio ligand techniques to, oh, right. to look for the expression of these receptors. But the actual time when I was becoming more and more interested in doing my own PhD, that was in the mid-80s. And that's when uh, molecular biology became more available. 
And also at that time in the early 90s, Mary Claire King, uh, you know, the famous the researcher in the Yeah. And she was then in Berkeley and she proved for the first time that there was a region on chromosome 70 that could be linked to hereditary breast cancer. That was done by linkage analysis. So we became interested in that. And also my clinical colleagues tried to gather breast cancer families at that time. We couldn't do much about it, but we know that they were there. And we participated also in this international linkage consortium. So we saw the very exciting time and then the hunt for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Mm -hmm. As I also mentioned that in the 90s, that was really the human genome project era. And in the end of the 90s, uh, microarray technology became available, first in Stanford, but also at NHGRI. And uh, we were really lucky to bring home that technique to Sweden and f set up a facility here that was used by many PhD students doing their, their studies. And that kept on going until uh, sequencing replaced microarrays and, and we got our first genome analyzer in 2009. So let, let's talk a little bit about breast cancer because I mm -hmm. know that that's the most common malignancy in women. Yeah. I read a statistic that one in nine women actually will ultimately develop breast cancer, which is a really, really sobering statistic. And given that it's so prevalent in society, you might assume that we know the most about breast cancer in terms of genetics. And you mentioned BRCA1 and BRCA2, these genes that we know increase a woman's risk of developing breast cancer when she has certain variants of BRCA1 and 2. But I think there's still a lot that we don't know about the genetics of breast cancer. So can you talk a little bit about the state of breast cancer in terms of, of the genetics? Yeah, that, that's a lot of interest for us also. So, you know, as you said, BSA 1 and 2 has been around now for more than 20 years, but we still have to learn much more how they function in DNA repair and genome integrity and that is going on. But also how to know how the many different variants that we detect in the clinics, how they really should be interpreted. Amino acid substitution could be deleterious, but they could also be neutral, so you have to distinguish those before you can use them. And we also know that there are alternative splicing that could rescue some of the obvious deleterious mutations. You have to take care of that also. But also on the method side and bioinformatics, because uh, many of the larger rearrangements that we now can find are quite tricky to find, so you have to develop methods all, all the time. The rearrangements are difficult to find because of the methods that, that are uh, used currently. Yeah, if you use amplicon sequencing or some other techniques that don't take account of the non-coding parts of the genes, then you can miss some of our complex rearrangements. And Is there an appreciation that these kinds of DNA rearrangements are more common than was once thought in breast cancer? Well, I, I think they make up some 5-10% of all the mutations that we find. So that's one thing. And uh, besides that, we know that BRCA1 and BRCA2 or BRCA1 or BRCA2 were the only major susceptibility genes. So many people looked for a third gene also, even we did that and failed also, of course, also. <laughs> but uh, there is actually a third gene also, it's called PELB2, which was not found by linkage analysis, but more by functional analysis, similarity to BRCA1 and BRCA2 proteins. And that is also a high-risk gene. So that is now also incorporated into the clinical panel that we use. And there are also a few other high-risk genes, but they are very, very rare and connected mostly to these rare syndromes like P53 and uh, P10 and uh, E-cadherin. Very rare mutated, but still high-risk genes. But besides for those five, six, seven high-risk genes, the field is now turning more to these moderate-risk genes, for example, ATM and CHEC2. Right. That is now also analyzed in the clinical routines, part of the gene panels. 
in cardiology, there's this concept of apologenic risk score, exactly. where you have multiple DNA variants, each one of those conferring a very small amount exactly. of risk. Yeah. I think people forget, I certainly forget, that cancer is also a kind of complex it disease is. like that. Yeah. So is that kind of thinking coming to oncology, that you need to sum up the individual risks for yeah. all these variants? Uh, it's not here right now, but I think that will be something in the near future that you should combine all the types of risks the higher and moderate risk, but also these low-risk SNPs, as you say. It's said that about 20-25% of all breast cancers are due to some kind of genetics. And that's what we call familial risk of breast cancer. So we dist distinguish that from the more sporadic and spontaneous and stochastic events. It is usually the cause of breast cancer. So among those 20-25%, the high-risk screens make up a small proportion, maybe 10-15%. So that means that 15% or 20% is about 2-3-4%. So the high-risk genes make up a very small proportion of all breast cancers. Right. But uh, together with these uh, low-risk SNPs and moderate-risk genes, which are probably a lot of them, we are going to combine them, th those into what we call uh, polygenic risk scores. You know, you were directly involved in establishing something called SCAN-B. Right. Which is an initiative that stands for Sweden Cancerome Analysis Network Breast. And how is you know this effort unique and why was it necessary, you think, to start this type of project in Sweden? Yeah. So SCANB was initiated almost ten years ago in two thousand ten. And it's a collaboration between academia and healthcare and currently nine different hospitals in Sweden are participating in the network. And that corresponds to about twenty, twenty five percent of all breast cancer diagnosis in Sweden. So in that sense, it's population-based, you can say. And it's unique in that way that patient inclusion into the study is part of the clinical routine. And that also makes the inclusion rate very high. So over 90% of patients accept the invitation. And it's also unique by its size. Uh, by now, between 13 and 14,000 patients has been included increases every year by 1,500 to 2,000, so it becomes enormously high numbers of patients. And we're eternally grateful for those patients that accept the invitation, and even knowing that probably the research that we're doing will not affect the disease. Not and, directly, uh, yeah. But for future patients. And it's also unique in, in that respect that we collect fresh tumor tissue, not formally fixed tissue. So you can really do advanced molecular characterization of the tumors. And we cl collect also blood samples both before and after surgery and several times after surgery. It's also of value because it represents a more contemporary cohort of breast cancer. We talked about the HER2 gene, right. which is amplified in about 15% of all breast cancers and confer a very aggressive type of breast cancer. So in, in the past, those patients did very poorly. But nowadays when we had these new antibody treatments like Herceptin and other treatments, the outcome is quite different. I mean, they do very well now. That's great. So that has to be taken into account now. Now we see the modern type of breast cancer and then try to build new prognostic signatures. So we have a different breast cancer now than we did for 30, 40 years ago. That's, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. You're collecting biological samples and then you couple that to health outcomes data. Right. Yeah. We have connection to these quality clinical registers so we can collect tumor pathology data and how patients are treated. And regarding clinical follow-up, we still have to do some uh, collection of data from the patient records in order to get clinical follow-up and 
record all the recurrences and, and survival, of course. So I've read that you started using RNA-seq, this kind of genome-wide analysis of gene expression in these cohorts. There's a lot of people who are doing germline testing. And why did you think that looking at gene expression genome-wide was so critical? Mm -hmm. what, what does that kind of an analysis inform us about breast cancer? You know, breast cancer is a very heterogeneous disease. It's not only very common, but it's also heterogeneous. And in the primary setting, in a primary breast cancer, it's not too much driven by point mutations like it is in melanoma and colon and lung cancer. It's more driven by copy number changes in the genome, which will impact cause gene expression levels. And it has been known that gene expression profiling is important to try to stratify patients into different recurrence risk groups. And in the past, that has been done by the ordinary clinical pathological biomarkers like ER, PGR, HER2, and histological grading. We think that the current subdivision is an underestimate of the true heterogeneity. And that's just as a result of people looking in only focused regions yeah, of the genome. Yeah, yeah, and also in small cohorts, you know. So by having 10,000 tumors, we can really do a new molecular taxonomy of breast cancer, we think. And also try to build prognosis markers within this subgroup, not for breast cancer in general. So that's the hope that we have there. So if you're a physician, you'd, one might argue you'd want to know as much genetic information mm -hmm. about an individual in that tumor as possible. On the other hand, you may get a lot of genetic information that's not yeah. quote-unquote actionable. You don't really exactly. know what to do with it. So there's always this tension. From the standpoint of Scan B, how are clinicians in Sweden or are they incorporating lessons of SCAN-B in their clinical practice? And has this initiative changed how oncologists, at least in southern Sweden, are looking at or are thinking about genetic testing in breast cancer? Yeah. Well, th this is the really critical question, I would say, and this is on our minds all the time. There are so much data generated on the research side, and how should we and, and what should be translated past the barrier into the clinics? That's the, the hard trick. It was easy in the genetics, you know, when you find a BRCA1 gene, you can easily transfer that to clinics. But here, tumor profiling is more difficult. So I guess it's also different in the primary and the metastatic setting of breast cancer. In the metastatic setting, you have more looking for actionable mutations that could be used in a metastatic setting. That is not still in the primary setting. Here you look for subtypes of breast cancer and try to find stratification of a patient into low and high risk uh, groups for recurrence of disease and that is, has an impact on how you treat patients. So that has been done for many years and using pathological biomarkers but more recently also by these molecular gene expression techniques and so by doing a more global RNA profiling as we are doing in SCANB we think that you can draw many different signatures from that data and use that for different purposes. Not only in ER positive or luminal breast cancer, but also in the other types of breast cancer. And it also provides data for continued research. And um, you can add on, as I said, also genomic profiling and protein profiling on that to really give it a more uh, nuanced information. The problem there is, of course, that we have to validate this approach. That has not yet been done in order to really convince clinicians and healthcare in Sweden to, that this is the way to do it. What are the main barriers of entry for employing these genome-wide testing approaches like RNA-seq or exome sequencing or even whole genome sequencing into the clinic? Um, 
do you think we'll eventually come to a point where we'll be using whole genome sequencing in the clinic as part of routine clinical care in breast cancer? I think so, yeah. Uh, it's still a bit too expensive to do whole genome sequencing in larger numbers, and especially since you have to run both tumor and normal pairs of tumors in order to subtract the constitution of variants from the acquired. But they will come eventually, and in fact we have started doing that in a smaller scale, working together with research in, in Cambridge and this Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. Uh, Dr. Nick Chanal has been a great collaborator to us, and we're focused on a certain subtype of breast cancer called triple negatives, which lack the biomarkers for targeted treatment. And these are difficult tra cancers to they treat, are, typically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have very poor prognosis. Uh, so we did whole genome sequencing on them, looking for what we called HRD, which is homologous recombination deficiency. And that is usually connected to defect BRCA1 or BRCA2 function, because you don't have that homologous repair. And, you know, that leaves a certain scars in the tumor genome that could be detected by you doing uh, genome sequencing, finding substitutions uh, and also rearrangements that are typical for those type of, of lesions. When you do that, you find tumors which have the same genotype as the BRCA1 and BRCA2 defect tumors, but also other that don't have BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. Well, that's interesting. So that means that maybe this tumor profiling, finding the scars could be a better biomarker than the mutations in the BRCA gene. It's themselves. almost like looking for the end result right. of that mutation as opposed to the upstream uh, markers. So we are doing that now in triple negative breast cancer and see that it really has a correlation to good response to certain chemotherapy. And if you do also whole genome sequencing, you also get a lot of things, a point mutation, and you can do this mutational load thing that is turned out to be a good biomarker for immunotherapy. That has not yet reached breast cancer, but I think it will in, in the future also. I think it's really interesting what you're accomplishing with ScanB. It's really interesting that you now have this kind of proof-of-concept study of doing this sort of initiative at scale. You have a large number of cohorts. In terms of breast cancer, what excites you about the future of you know, applying genomics analysis, but then applying genomics analysis to cancer more generally. What do you think we're going to see in the next few years? Yeah, first of all, it's very exciting to see what scan B could lead to and what it will end. We have a large material now, and as I said, it becomes more and more available with time, and we can also add new types of analysis on the whole cohort. And we really invite other researchers to participate in this, use the material and use the data, so we can really have everything coming out from this and really benefit patients in the future. So that's one side. The other side is that still it's quite frustrating and challenging, and that is on, on the tumor heterogeneity part, intratumor heterogeneity, because usually you only get a small piece, small biopsy from the whole tumor. And we do analysis on that and try to predict the outcome. And also uh, pathologists then, and doing immunistic chemistry on small thin sections of the tumor, they only see part of the whole picture. Right. So the problem is how to see the whole picture. And new techniques doing single cell sequencing and transcriptomics, and also this in situ hybridization and uh, transcriptomic analysis, uh, they have a great future because then you can see and look in different cells. You can look for different subclones of tumors cancer stem cells. You can also look for infiltrating 
lymphocyte inflammatory cells and also stromal cells to see what they take part in the whole picture. So you think we're going to move away from this sort of bulk analysis of tumor more toward single cell yeah, analysis? It's still too extensive and expensive to do that type of analysis, but I think we have to move in that direction. Unless you could be able to sequence the whole bulk, the whole tumor, and try to do some kind of bioinformatics to sort out what the different clones are. That could be another approach to it. And another thing also that, that there are a lot of image analysis coming up now doing deep learning and, and other stuff uh, to have machines learning how to interpret different patterns and morphology and uh, look for things that the human eye couldn't see. Yeah. That is coming also, and, uh, and that's a great, great thing. But on the genetic side, I think uh, we already touched upon that, and this polygenic risk scores could really be something that could make a difference and also have an impact on prevention of disease, and that's what... Which would be great, which right? Which should be great. Yeah. Okay, I want to thank you so much for spending some of your time to talk with us and discuss the Scambi project. And good luck on this work. I think there's a great need for that. And uh, thank you for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you very much. So breast cancer is a highly heterogeneous disease at the genetic level. But next-generation sequencing, or NGS, is allowing scientists an unprecedented view of the genomic complexity of breast cancer and other tumors as well. Large population-based projects like SCAN-B are employing genomics to help assess the genetic linkages between multiple DNA variants and clinical outcomes in breast cancer. If you're interested in learning more about the SCAN-B project, please visit www.med dot lu dot se slash scan underscore b and if you like today's show please subscribe to our podcast on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts join me next time when i'll be giving an overview of the recent ecmid infectious disease conference held this year in amsterdam ECMID is Europe's largest clinical microbiology conference, and I'll feature some interesting applications of NGS in clinical microbiology right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>